The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Those of you who are in the room, you're very, very welcome. But obviously, I think a lot of people are also joining us online. So those of you who are joining us online, it's great that you're following it. And uh, hopefully you can join us in social media as well, uh, as can everybody uh, in the room. We use the hashtag um, at DLRH and then also, sorry, the hashtag I'm going to get it right eventually. The handle at TLRH and the hashtag Hub Matters, but also Hub at 10, because we're in the year of our 10th birthday celebrations. So just very briefly, my name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Hub. And for those of you who aren't familiar with what we do here, it's really three things. We celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities. We promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And then uh, the third thing we do is public humanities. And this Out of the Ashes series is very much a part of that. It's the brainchild of my uh, colleague, uh, Peter Crooks, who's around somewhere. Um, and we're very grateful to Peter and everybody who uh, has made this series uh, possible, including Anna Shahood, because actually it was through Anna and my other uh, co- great colleague, Joe Clark, who you're going to be hearing from later, that this evening happened. Uh, so it's going to be Anna who introduces our speaker, who comes all the way from uh, Australia via Oxford. So it's not like he's just flown in for this um, on the country. He's on this side uh, of of, of the world. But Philip, you are extremely welcome. Um, You can see what you get on a bad night. You can imagine what it would have been uh, if we hadn't had this current crisis. So you're uh, extremely welcome. And without further ado, Anna, if I can ask you to uh, uh, kick things off. Thank you very much, Jane. I feel like an interloper. I'm not a historian, but uh, greatly look forward to this. Um, It's a great privilege for me to introduce uh, our speaker. Uh, Philip Dwyer is Professor of History at the University of Newcastle in Australia, but comes to us tonight from All Souls College, Oxford. I'm sure that many of you will be familiar with his work, but uh, again, uh, we want to take uh, this opportunity to remind ourselves, if we are not, like myself, histo- uh, historians, of the magnitude of the work that Professor Dwyer has uh, produced uh, uh, over the years. His original speciality was the history of the 18th and late 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, he was educated at uh, the Sorbonne in, pa- in Paris, and at the University of Western Australia, and he soon established himself as a leading historian of French and European history of that period, with with very broad interests ranging from political history, biography, and iconography, but with a special focus on the Napoleonic Wars and the Napoleonic Empire. He is now the world-leading biographer of Napoleon, of the 14 books he has published in the past two decades, and probably since I last wrote this, there's another one out, because this is the rate of, 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 uh, of Professor Dwyer's uh, productive research. Of those 14 books, five are studies on Napoleon. 
including the most recent and wonderfully titled Napoleon, Passion, Death and Resurrection, 1815 to 1840, which was published in 2018, which has been acclaimed as a monumental work. Meticulously researched, well-written, even-handed, authoritative, fascinating and highly enjoyable. What more do you want? Well, more is to come very soon as the three-volume Cambridge History of the Napoleonic Wars, which uh, Professor Dwyer has co-edited, will appear later this year. <clears throat> but Professor Dwyer is also the founding director of the Center for the Study of Violence at his university, a prestigious flagship in the University of Newcastle's numerous research centers in the arts and humanities. The Center for the Study of Violence explores a question in particular, which is extremely relevant to the destruction theme of this year's Out of the Ashes series. What is violence? As a historian, he explores the question in all its cultural, social, political complexities. He has demonstrated that a better understanding of the human dimension of violence in history is not achieved through statistical approaches, such as, for example, Steven Pinker's theory that all violence can be equated with irrationality and reason, uh, ignorance, and uh, has significantly decreased over time, uh, especially after the Enlightenment. This approach, Professor Dwyer maintains, does not do justice to either the victims of violence or to the scholarship that pursues a real understanding of what violence actually is. So what is it then? Our distinguished colleague, Professor John Horn, who is with us tonight, tells us that violence is primarily coercive power exercised on the body of another person, but also reminds us that it is much more than that. Violence comes in different forms and it has different valence, to quote John, at different times, in war and in peace, for example. In his research, Professor Dwyer engages precisely with these different forms. He tackles the difficulties involved in defining violence, and I quote from his recent paper on violence and its histories, 2017, argues that, quote, a much more productive approach to violence in history is to examine its forms and functions and the changing attitudes towards these forms and functions. He seeks to understand moments and cultures of violence, representations and discourses of violence, which look for, again, quote, the connections between the cultural, the social and the political, between representation and social experience. Interpreting the meaning of violence, the meanings of violence that use uh, new theoretical frameworks and that link violence to other aspects of human behavior will help us, he says, better understand what it is to be human, unquote. I'm sure that these few words are enough to give you a sense of the sheer scale of Professor Dwyer's work. He's currently writing a global history of violence entitled The Savage Heart, A History of Human Violence. He's also planning a six-volume cultural history of violence after coordinating the four volumes of the Cambridge World History of Violence, which is due out later this month. This work is a multifaceted, argumentative treatment of the subject in all its themes from a variety of perspectives. It is a truly comparative and transnational project, starting with the origins of conflict in prehistory 
all the way to representations and constructions of violence in modern and uh, contemporary world. Professor Dwyer tells us that its aim is to assess the nature and extent of violence, its causes, its reasons, uh, uh, the reasons for particular levels of violence at particular times. Again, it is a historian's job to ask questions. And here are some of Professor Dwyer's questions. Why do some societies in some centuries produce more violence than others? What is the relationship between violence and the state, its presence or absence as a state? How can violence be sanctioned and considered to be good in some instances? Has violence significantly declined over time? The answers, he believes, will help us, again, quote, to understand the interaction between the forces that shape violence, how institutions, beliefs and structures of daily life may reduce or vice versa amplify the potential for violent action, and which is most relevant to our event this evening, how the memory or the anticipation of violence can shape society. We are looking forward uh, greatly to his lecture this evening and we're immensely grateful to him for the opportunity he offers us to hear his insight. After the lecture, as uh, Jane said, our very own Dr. Jo Joseph Clark will respond and chair mon moderate the discussion. Dr. Clark shares many an interest with our distinguished guests. His research focuses on the relationship between cultural change and political conflicts in Western Europe over the long 18th century. He is the co-editor of the French History Journal, published by Oxford University Press, which has devoted the most recent special issue to the exploration of religion and violence in France, 1500 to the present. He has written extensively on the Napoleonic Wars and on cultural aspects of revolutionary and post-revolutionary France, starting with his first monograph entitled Commemorating the, Commemorating the Dead, in Revolutionary France, Revolution and Remembrance, 1789-1799, which book has been noted for its remarkable study of archival records and the considerable insight it offers into the political uses <coughs> and misuses of remembrance. And with John Horne, Joe has edited the volume Militarized Cultural Encounters in the Long 19th Century, Making War, Mapping Europe, 2018, to which he has also contributed a discussion of British and French soldiers in the revolutionary and Napoleonic Mediterranean. We are in for a treat this evening, and I won't keep you waiting any longer. So, Broken Bones, <coughs> Broken Stones, Iconoclasm in World History, Professor Philip Dwight. Thank you, Anna, for that um, extraordinarily thorough and generous introduction. I think that's the nicest introduction that I've ever had. Uh, and thank you to Peter for inviting me uh, this evening. Um, I'm a little embarrassed to say that despite my Irish heritage, I've only ever been here once before, very briefly in the 1980s, so I was uh, delighted to receive an invitation to come back and visit again. And thank you all uh, for coming out this evening. So, as Anna has mentioned, um, I'm an historian, so I'm going to come at this uh, probably a little differently to some of your uh, previous speakers. Uh, 
excuse me, I'm not so much interested in the object itself. Um, I'm much more interested, uh, as Anna pointed out, in people's behaviours and people's attitudes, and in this case, towards the object. So I guess iconoclasm fundamentally is a clash between image makers and image breakers. And it's the image breakers uh, that I want to delve into tonight, the iconoclasts, the people who are doing the destroying. Those are the people who interest me for this uh, talk at least. Whether they do so in the name of politics or religion, they have often been portrayed or are often portrayed as either barbarians or vandals. And some of you might know that the word vandalism itself was invented during uh, the French Revolution and it was meant to uh, tar the mob with the uh, et uh, etiquette of, um, epithet of uh, terrorism. And that negative portrayal of iconoclasts has carried over to the present day. Now, of course, we all lament the destruction of art and often the history that goes with it. But I, want, I, I guess I'm trying to do something a little differently this evening. What I want to do is to um, consider that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, we have to destroy in order to create, in order to regenerate. And in saying this, please don't think that I am in any way trying to excuse or condone all iconoclasts. I'm simply trying to understand why some people feel compelled to obliterate images and statues and symbols. Now, I know the term is extraordinarily uh, complicated. It has many different meanings. I even came across uh, this book, Iconoclasm as Child's Play. Um, personally, I can vaguely remember dismembering a Barbie doll when I was uh, a child. Perhaps that's just me. But um, it sort of raises all sorts of questions about whether the destructive impulse is innate. And it's a question that's sort of running through most of my talk this evening. I, I can't really go into it in any detail, perhaps in the discussion after. But I want to begin by making three uh, generalizations. And the first is that iconoclasm is rarely the result of mindless violence. That is, it's not always about the unthinking mob. It's often orchestrated. But it's also interesting to note that the outcome, the endpoint, the destruction of an object can be arrived at from many different paths, depending on the period we're talking about. The iconoclasts, on the other hand, always justify their actions, whether we're talking about ancient Christians, uh, Protestants in the 16th century, or the Taliban in Afghanistan, they always convince themselves that their actions are just, not only necessary, but just. And when religion is intertwined with iconoclasm, they're convinced that they're acting not only with the will of God, but in the name of God and with his approval. In other words, and I guess this is the second generalization I'd like to make, Iconoclasm is invariably a tool used by groups across the political and religious spectrum to assert a particular point of view, or indeed to contest a particular idea. 
but it's also ultimately about the destruction of the past and in most instances about obliterating the memory of that past. So it can involve the destruction of things that we might not always associate with iconoclasm. Yes, of course, it involves the uh, destruction of a statue or some other politically uh, charged uh, monument, as we're going to see in a little while. But it could also involve things like renaming streets and towns, the burning of a national flag, the destruction of buildings. Think of 9-11 as a form of iconoclasm. The Twin Towers, after all, were a symbol of uh, global or American capitalism. And as some of you may have seen in previous lectures in this series, it also involves the deliberate targeting of cultural religious sites and the, the deliberate destruction of texts, which goes at least as far back as ancient Mesopotamia, and even the disappearance of people from photos. So Dr. Stalin's left is Nikolai Yezhov, who was once uh, Stalin's right-hand man, uh, deeply involved in the purges, uh, directly responsible for the deaths of thousands of people, and who was removed from the photographic record when he fell out of favour in 1939. So all of these acts that I've spoken about speak to particular religious or political groups wanting to control how people think about the past. And the third observation I'd like to make tonight is that iconoclasts interact with the object and often mutilate the object as though it were a living person. As though they were mutilating the body of a living person. And you can see this in the behaviour of crowds right up to the present day, and I'll show you an example of this in a little while. But there's something else here as well, something that I want uh, to emphasize this evening, and that is iconoclasts don't just mutilate the object. The act is often accompanied by the death and mutilation of the people associated with that object. Now, this was obviously much more widespread in the past than it is today, but it's still a highly significant phenomenon today. All right, let me begin with some examples from the recent past, and many of you will be familiar with these examples. These are the things that have happened in the last few decades that have shocked our Western sensibilities. And they include the construction of the old um, Mostar Bridge in Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1993, um, which, is, uh, which has since been rebuilt. And I know that Helen Waleska uh, Balasek, sorry, was uh, here a couple of months ago speaking about the deliberate targeting of cultural sites in, in, uh, in Kosovo and Serbia. The it includes other things like the destruction of saints' tombs and ancient manuscripts, uh, such as in the north of Mali in Timbuktu in 2012, and 2013 by Islamist insurgents. And I know, again, this was the topic of a talk here last year and the depredations carried out by Islamic State in Syria and Iraq between 2015 and 2017. Now, Islamic State released a video, if I can, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do
who have destroyed priceless pieces of history, a video posted yet. So, Islamic State <clears throat> uh, recorded their men topic statues, as you can see, smashing them with sledgehammers, attacking other statues uh, at archaeological sites with uh, circular saws and jackhammers. And these are, this is uh, the ISIS. A religious spokesman for the group condemned the treasures as sacrilegious. These idols and pagans for people in the past centuries were worshipped instead of Allah, he said. When Allah ordered to destroy and remove them, it was an easy matter. We don't care, even if it costs billions of dollars. So these are deliberately choreographed events that, I would argue, depend above all on their association with the living and the ease with which both, that is, the object and people, can be eliminated. Let me come back to that. Sorry, I have to jump between two. Do I have the right one? Including this man that I wanted to point out. Uh, can you? Right, yes, of course. Not the one that I want, sorry. Including this man, Khaled al-Assad, who devoted much of his life to working on the ancient city of Palmyra. He was head archaeologist there and who was beheaded by Islamic State at the age of 83 and who I think uh, just deserves to be remembered for that. But the one event I want to focus on this evening is the destruction of the giant statues of the Buddhists in the Afghan Valley of Bamiyan in March 2001. Bamiyan, I would argue, was not a typical example of Islamist iconoclasm. It was an attack on a world heritage site, but it was also a cultural atrocity. At the time, the director of the New York's Metropolitan, Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, Philippe de Montebello, pleaded with the Taliban to let the world remove the statues so that they could be put in a museum thereby becoming works of art and not just uh, cult or religious objects. Now, I, th I think he completely misunderstood the intent of the Taliban. The aim of all religious iconoclasts, whether the Taliban or you know, 16th century Calvinists, is to achieve that purity of all objects and images and sometimes, and to destroy all objects and images that are not pure and the people associated with them. And this purity entails a sense of separation from a corrupt world and aversion to compromise. These are the two characteristics of any zealot, I would argue. And in this, the Taliban, as well as other religious entities, have this in common. They're not interested in creating anything new. 
they are orthodox in the sense that they are trying to recreate an idealized religious past. And for the Taliban, that was a pure Islamic state. I can talk later in more detail about what their intentions may have been. So they saw their mission as one of destroying false idols. So they also destroyed not only the Bamiyan Buddhas, but more than 2,700 objects in museums in Kabul at the time. And they believed that they were carrying out the will of God. So this is the Buddhas before and after the destruction. Note that the statue is faceless, which means that they had probably been targeted by medieval iconoclasts, and which also means that the Taliban probably didn't know about their history or what had happened to them in their past. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm saying that traditionally, there were a number of options open to them, not just the outright destruction of these statues. Now, this, the destruction of the statues was preceded by a Taliban massacre of the Hazara people, which barely got a mention in the press, in the Western press at the time. So the problem for us is knowing exactly what was behind the Taliban's decision to destroy the monuments. The statues had existed, after all, in an essentially Muslim uh, region for centuries before the Taliban had come along. But whatever their reasons, the behaviour of the Taliban suggests that this was a particularly modern form of iconoclasm, even if it's carried out in the guise of a return to the past. I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Everything suggests that the intended audience was not local, <coughs> but global, a performance designed for the age of the internet. Okay, let me come back to Palmyra. This was not the first time that Palmyra had been attacked by iconoclasts. In the 4th century AD, Christian mobs destroyed the Greco-Roman temples in the region, as well as the statue of Athena in Palmyra that had stood there for centuries. <coughs> so during the 4th and 5th centuries, Christians demolished and vandalised an untold number of statues and temples. So we can find ample evidence of this in the British Museum. This is uh, in room 18, where the Parthenon marbles are housed. Many of the statues, as you can see, are in a pretty sorry state. This is not the fault of Lord Elgin, who brought them across. This was the work of zealous Christians who set about attacking what they considered to be demons, and in the process uh, mutilating some uh, of the finest examples of statuary that ancient Greece had produced. And you can see here the central figures of the east pediment of the Parthenon that showed the miraculous birth of the goddess Athena from the head of her father Zeus. Now many of the figures from the central scene, which is shaped out of one block of marble, are now you know, fragmentary or entirely lost, and those that uh, remain more or less intact were probably too high or too inaccessible for the mob. Near the Parthenon, Parthenon marbles is a basalt statue of the Emperor Germanicus. 
and you can see that he's had his nose knocked off with two blows and a cross cut into his forehead. So as historians, we're trying to figure out why these particular uh, acts um, occurred and what they mean. And in the ancient world, it was no coincidence that the nose and the mouth were often attacked since it was meant to deprive the spirit of the means of living, so breathing through the nose, drinking and eating through the mouth, and so on. So there are traces of this Christian destruction throughout the museums of the world. In Athens, you can see this larger-than-life statue of Aphrodite that's been disfigured by a crude cross in the forehead and uh, carved into her eyes, and her nose is missing. In the archaeological uh, museum, the Sparta Archaeological Museum, there's a large statue of the goddess Hera that has had her eyes disfigured by crosses. So the Christian attack on the Greek and Roman gods not only led to the total annihilation of pagan religions, but also to many of the texts that accompany them. Many of you will know that we lost, we have lost about 90% of the literature from the ancient world, not always through iconoclastic acts or through all sorts of different reasons, but they too were targeted. So the, the physical manifestations of the cult, the people that were associated with the pagan cults and the texts that were associated with them uh, were, were um, obliterated in a way that we will not see again until the Spanish arrive in Central and, and uh, Southern America a thousand years later. So the question I, I, want, I ask myself and I want to pose tonight is, is there a substantive or a qualitative difference between the early Christians and the Taliban or Islamic State? Both of them are destroying images of another god. Now, there are two you know, fairly glib and obvious answers to that question. And the first is that Islamic State had jackhammers, bulldozers, and explosives. But I wonder if the early Christians had had the same means at their disposal, would they not have obliterated most of the pagan temples and statues in the same way. I, I suspect that they would have. We know better what motivated early Christians than what motivated Islamic states, but there appears to be some remarkable parallels between them, starting with an intractable belief in their God. So the Greek and Roman temples were home to false gods and they had to be destroyed. The early Christians, just like Taliban or Islamic State would not have considered this to be violence or even vandalism, but rather the will of God. And the second big answer to my question is that for the first time in history, the iconoclasts filmed what they were doing. Films that were designed to elicit an emotional response from the viewer. So the propaganda videos, some of which we saw at the beginning of the talk, include social media messaging, photographs, and just about every digital platform that you can think of. So YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, were all used by Islamic State and the Taliban. And the strategy entails the recording of a site before, during, and after the moment of destruction in order to send different messages to different people. So for Islamic State, for example, the process of destruction 
is almost as important as the outcome itself. So these three stages, before, during, and after, are essential acts in their own right. Recording the moments before the, the destruction of a site builds up tension in the narrative that they are telling. The process of destruction is literally directed by someone who's very familiar with uh, propaganda filmmaking techniques. And then the site is recorded after the destruction as if to document the scale and the veracity of the Islamic State's war on cultural heritage. And this has led some scholars to talk about a digitally mediated iconoclasm, which captures these three stages, before, during, and after, as both evidence of the destruction and as, and this is, I guess, the tricky bit, an enduring digital archive. We'll come back to this point in a moment. So much of what I've spoken about up until now involves uh, religious rather than secular iconoclasm. But I want to talk about the secular now for a while. Moments that strike at the state, that strike at kingship, that strike at dictators of one kind or, an or another, reproducing patterns of iconoclasm that have existed for many, many centuries. And in these moments, kings and queens and dictators are debased and humiliated. So this is the head of the pharaoh Hatshepsut, who reigned between 478 and 458 BC. It was once uh, part of a much larger sphinx. And Hatshepsut was one of the very few women to rule over ancient Egypt. And if the name is sort of vaguely familiar, it's because she plays a leading role in the Tom Cruise film, The Mummy, <laughs> in which Tom apparently delivers a couple of uh, passable lines in late Egyptian. So. After her death, there was an aggressive campaign to eliminate her legacy by her stepson, who became Tutmos III. He is systematically he systematically attacked her statues, reinscribed monuments with his own name decapitated statues, cut off the noses. You, have to, you, you can see the noses cut off, but the symbols of monarchy were also removed. So the cobra from the headdress and the beard uh, from the chin, which was a symbol of monarchy in ancient Egypt. But in order to fully understand what's going on here, I guess we have to appreciate the power of images to carry at least some aspect of a person's presence into posterity through memory. And the mutilation or destruction of a statue is an attempt to annihilate the memory of that person. And the Romans became extraordinarily adept at this, so there's a whole discourse of image destruction and memory uh, erasure that became very normal uh, during the Roman Empire and is known in modern scholarship as Damnatio Memoriae. So on the fall of an emperor, especially if that emperor had been usurped, it was normal practice to remove or destroy all the images associated with that emperor so new images of the new emperor uh, could uh, fill their, their place. And we see exactly the same thing accompanying regime change 
in the modern world. And there are endless, endless examples of this. So this is uh, the toppling of Joseph Wilton's statue of George III in New York in 1776. This was sort of New York's equivalent of the Boston Tea Party, if you will, a parable of American nationhood. So down comes the king, up come the American people uh, to take his place. Or indeed of Edme Bouchardon's statue of Louis XV, uh, which once stood uh, in the Place de la Concorde, which was once named Place Louis XV, uh, until the revolutionaries pulled it down in 1792. And during the revolution, where statues were just too big uh, to remove with any ease or without a good deal of effort, they were often, statues of the king that is, they were often covered in black cloth. So they transformed uh, somewhat poetically, I think. Um, they were transformed, rather. The statues were transformed into a, a powerful sign of the monarchy's death. And it's interesting to note that this shrouding has recently been practiced in the southern states of the United States with Confederate statues being covered in black uh, cloth. And I would argue that this is possibly a much more powerful uh, symbol than simply removing or smashing these statues. Or, again, another example is the toppling of the Vendôme Column in Paris in 1870 by the Communard. There's a whole chapter about this uh, in the third volume of uh, Napoleon. All of, these, all of these events are accompanied by the killing and the massacre of people at more or less the same time as well. Or indeed, uh, the toppling of the statue of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad during the Second Gulf War, uh, an event that was carefully stage managed by the Americans. I'm sure many of you uh, can recall watching this on television in 2003, and many at the time hailed it as an iconic moment as evidence of the US military's triumph over the Iraqis, but also as a kind of um, expression of the Iraqi people's gratitude toward, towards the Americans, because many Iraqis were present during the toppling. In the nine hours after this event, Fox News replayed the video on average every four minutes. But as the years passed and Iraq spiralled into sectarian violence, the statues toppling morphed into, I guess, a symbol of journalists' naivety or naive enthusiasm for the Bush administration back in the day. I don't know how, but that left uh, leg has ended up in a house near Hamburg. It was bought by a German antiques dealer. I don't know what he's doing with it. And finally, as we saw too, after the collapse of communism in the Eastern Bloc, or indeed the fall of Gaddafi in Libya, or in the Ukraine in 2016, when a formal process of decommunization was initiated and which led to the removal of more than 1,300 statues of Lenin. This is a statue of Lenin in Odessa that was repurposed which I find quite interesting. It's uh, what some people called uh, monument conversion. So, for example, a statue that's no longer acceptable can be converted, and in this case it was converted into Darth Vader. 
I'm not sure what the historical message is here. Perhaps it's still unfolding. Perhaps it has something to do with the Soviet Union being the dark empire. I'm not entirely sure. Now, as I mentioned, all of these examples strike at state power of one kind or another. In recent years, though, something quite different has been going on. I'm sure many of you have seen uh, scenes of this and images of this on the news. And it involves, I guess, contemporary debates about whether monuments have an end life or an expiry date. And this is happening in many countries across the world, from North America to South Africa to Australia. Indeed, to Oxford, there was a, a, a movement uh, some years ago to remove the statue of uh, Rhodes, and it's the Rhodes Fall campaign in Cape Town in 2015 that appears to have launched this global trend in which statues have become the battleground for cultural wars that are going on in each of these countries. Let me show you a clip on this. And note, everyone has a smartphone. I'll come back to this point. This is, again, an example of uh, you know, digital iconoclasm. sitting in a cell awaiting a trial for war crimes in The Hague, and his subsequent philanthropy would not be accepted as mitigating evidence. This is also the case, and I'm going to have to change screens, I'm sorry. This is also the case for the statues memorialising Confederate generals. This is Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville in Virginia. In 2017, white nationalists marched on what is otherwise a pretty quiet college town to protest the city's plan to remove that statue. The statue had been there since 1924. You have to understand that the vast majority of statues in the South to Confederate generals or Confederate heroes, as they call them, were erected between 1900 and 1920. That this is um, this coincided with both the founding of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People at the beginning of the 20th century, and a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. And these statues were installed, so during the Jim Crow era, for the express purpose of reminding an increasingly upwardly mobile African-American population of recent history. So you know the story, I'm sure, around Charlottesville. There were counter-demonstrators uh, who were opposed to the white uh, supremacists. Things descended into violence. Uh, someone was killed, you would have seen uh, images of their car driving through a crowd. This movement, 
eventually led to the removal of over 100 Confederate statues within weeks of this particular moment. And it has in its aim the removal of... I've got one more clip. I've got one more clip. I don't know if this is going to come up. The removal of all Confederate statues. Do you have... I just need to show one 30 seconds of this. I'm sorry, I've got all that as well. Commentators were very quick to reference the toppling of George III, which I mentioned a little while ago. So this is Bryn Newsom, a leader of the Black Lives Matter movement, who wrote for the Washington Post, with the same spirit of those New Yorkers who toppled the statue of King George, recognising the people had the power and the ability to rule themselves without a king, we should topple all monuments to the Confederacy. So this is what often happened, but they were often removed in the middle of the night. Uh, the local workers were often uh, clad in bulletproof vests and escorted by armed police as they performed their task. But what often happens in these particular instances, if they occur very quickly, is that it's, you have an empty space. So you, you have the pedestal there, which now has a few pop plants on it, apparently. And that I, can, in certain instances, act as a kind of um, symbol for um, those who disagree with the removal. So a kind of stigma of victimhood, if you like. Opponents of the removal of these statues say that it is, it is a shameful attempt to erase history. And as a counter to that, commentators have suggested that the toppling of Confederate statues doesn't mean the obliteration of their history. They argue that, on the contrary, their defacement and dismantling, since it is now recorded and photographed and placed on digital media platforms for millions to see means that their memory lives on. Now, I guess that's true up to a point. Most of us would probably never, would never have been terribly aware of these Confederate statues and their meaning before Charlottesville in 2017. But now we know of their afterlives, so the argument goes, uh, because they've been memorialized in different media. Again, my question, somewhat provocative, is can we, would we say this, the same thing, for the Bamiyan Buddhas, or is that different? 
Okay, let me, so I've looked at the broken stones part of the lecture tonight. Let me very briefly touch on something that would not normally be considered iconoclasm. And I guess I'm trying to push the boundaries of what we would consider to be an iconoclastic act here a little, and I want to consider the desecration of human skeletal remains, and especially what are called revolutionary exhumations. During periods of civil war and revolution, not only are religious statues and buildings and figures of the king and queen attacked, not only are relics of saints and kings and queens attacked, they are taken out of their churches and their remains are often humiliated and displayed in public. This happened during the English Reformation and again during the English Civil War where the bones of saints and bishops were scattered and sometimes burned. It happened during the French Revolution in particular, where revolutionaries, I guess, took this thing a step further and they attempted to annihilate all physical remains of the former Bourbon kings. So their coffins were disinterred in the Basilica of Saint-Denis in Paris, which was the traditional uh, burial place of, uh, of royalty and where 158 once sacred bodies were thrown into pits and covered in quicklime. So the revolutionaries there took to an extreme what many cultures would consider to be a shocking sacrilege. In the first weeks of the Spanish Civil War, there were massive popular assaults against the Catholic Church, perceived to be hostile to the Republic and sympathetic to Franco, which it was in the main. So supporters of the Republic killed religious personnel in large numbers, certainly well into the thousands, while at the same time desecrating and destroying church paraphernalia and digging up the long-buried corpses of priests, nuns and saints, some of which had naturally mummified, as you can see in these rather macabre photos. So to the right we have the mummified corpses of two nuns that were taken out of sarcophagi in a monastery in Toledo in 1936. We see the same thing happening during the Chinese Cultural Revolution, where gangs of teenage revolutionaries, the Red Guards, destroyed statues, signs, buildings, books, burned books, killed many, many people. We don't know how many exactly. Figures range from hundreds of thousands to millions. But like other revolutionaries before them, they also destroyed monasteries, religious icons, and graves. So one former Red Guard wrote a memoir called The Blank Steli, in which he writes, just to be able to knock something down that had been standing and tramp on it and stamp on it and piss on it to your heart's desire, this was triumph, this was power, so we vented our hatred and felt gratified and it was beautiful and we were happy, why ask why? The act was meant to have been a kind of symbolic compensation for their powerlessness, so they humiliated what otherwise would have been considered, especially in Chinese culture, a sacred object. Now, there are lots of different ways the state can desecrate the memory of the dead and in the process try to obliterate them from history. Very briefly to conclude, two somewhat different examples, both of them associated with dictatorship, dictatorships. One is an example 
of how to remember or re-remember the past, if I can put it that way, and another is an example, a willful example, of wanting to forget the past. So this is one of the mass graves that's, that was discovered in an excavation outside of Burgos in Spain in 2014, and it dates from the start of the Spanish Civil War, and it's a grave that contains 26 Republicans who were killed by nationalists around 1936. The victims of Franco were usually left unidentified and put into thousands of mass graves across Spain. In July 2018, so four years later, the Spanish government established a truth commission to investigate crimes against humanity committed by the Franco regime. Spain is believed to have, or to contain, more mass graves than any other country outside of Cambodia. So the Spanish government promised it would compile a census of the victims of the Civil War and the ensuing dictatorship and open what they believed to be more than 1,200 mass graves, which contained the bodies of about 143,000 victims of the conflict on both sides, mind you. So that is an act of re-remembering. In Russia, we have exactly the opposite. There, too, you have thousands of mass graves, God knows how many, the remains of the victims of Stalin's purges. So this is a guy, Vitaly Kvasha, this is a report on Deutsche Welle that you can easily Google. He's digging in his back garden somewhere in Siberia, and up comes uh, a skull. He keeps on digging, and he keeps on uh, uncovering the remains of up to 60 uh, people, which he simply put in uh, bags and left uh, outside. He, he informed the authorities, and they were reluctant uh, to do anything about it, and basically, despite harassing them, they've just said, oh, we'll come and take away the remains, but that's all we're going to do. A willful example of not wanting to remember the past. Okay, let me conclude. We've probably gone a little bit uh, over time. Um, so, <clears throat> as we've seen, iconoclasts destroy for all sorts of reasons. At the very least, there's a desire to topple past idols, however we define that. There's a desire to break from the past, almost as though the breaking of the image is an act of purification. And there is a desire to obliterate the past, or at least the memory of the past. The ritual of the iconoclast is to put to death, symbolically, if you like, the idol, to decapitate, to dismember, to demonstrate that icons are hollow, both metaphorically and in some instances literally, that stone is just stone, that the bones of kings and saints are just bones. So the iconoclast's ritual is designed to demonstrate how absurd it is to put people on pedestals or to worship them in the first place. But as we've seen with movements in recent decades, the toppling of statues in particular has created a tension between remembering and forgetting, between creation and destruction, and between heritage and renewal. So let me end on this question. 
should we be removing statues of monuments and thereby obliterating the past, even when we are now aware of what those statues stood for to be objectionable, if not abhorrent? I can't give you an answer because I'm, I'm not sure what I think about this. There's a couple of ways you can look at it, I guess. I'm not entirely opposed to the removal of statues, but I'm much more in favour of what heritage practitioners call contextualisation. And this can take many different forms, but in its most simplest form, it's a plaque that explains the statue's history that puts the monument in context. I'm also in favour of repurposing statues, especially by artists. And I'm not uh, thinking here of Darth Vader. I'm thinking here of this Colombian artist, Ivan Aragote, who goes about um, North and South America finding statues of Columbus and clothing them with Amerindian ponchos. It's meant to be slightly humorous, and he's meant to be more or less saying that Columbus hadn't discovered anything at all, and he was just passing through. So what we are left with, on the other hand, when we obliterate statues altogether, is just their memory, facilitated now, of course, by the media footprint they leave behind, the before, the during, and the after. I'm not... I'm not sure whether that's the right way to proceed, but I'd be interested to hear your views. I think we just have to come to terms with the fact that the sins of the past helped forge the present. And I'll end on that. Thank you. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral City. The, 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 the hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.